0: Welcome to the SquawMates Podcast. This is a very serious podcast about reptiles and amphibians where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. I am one of your three co-hosts. I'm Dr. Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and an evolutionary biologist. And I'm joined by my co-hosts, Ethan Kosak.
1: Hi, I'm Ethan Kosak. I'm a cartoonist and a keeper of many newts.
2: And Gabriel Lughetto. And I'm Gabriel Lugeto and I'm a scientific illustrator, paleo artist, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore, although that might change for a little bit. <laughs> for for just, just one, just,
1: just, just, a, just one. a taste, yes. just a small... I like how I like it's, how it's small morsel. more and more footnotes as we go on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, asterisk, asterisk.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, Hello. Hello and welcome. It's another episode. And as we talked about on the last episode, we've changed up our style from the previous way that we used to talk about things because formerly we would have been talking about it in terms of, uh, you know, all of the content in all at one episode for three hours. But now we talk in smaller chunks about more concentrated things. And this is the second of the episodes that's going to be in that style
1: If you miss the old format, just wait and listen to three episodes in a row.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Our hope is that we can release these episodes more frequently and they'll be shorter and easier to listen to but hopefully also just as fun. So this is the second one. It's a different style than the first one. The first one was just papers that have been published in the last three months or so, five months or so since the last episode came out. Um, This one's going to be more of a chat about what we've been up to and a bit of a discussion about a topic of interest. And uh, we'll have another whole episode dedicated to Uh, women in herpetology, equality in herpetology, and um, just all kinds of stuff about making herpetology as a field much more inclusive. And that'll be up very soon as well. So let's get started with this episode of works in progress. And as usual, I guess I'm going to start. So (laughs) it's very anticlimactic. Um, (laughs)
1: It didn't have theme theme music, that's why. It doesn't have theme music yet.
0: Maybe we can get on that. Maybe we can make that happen.
1: Um, uh,
0: Where to begin? I mean, so much has happened in the intervening time since the episode before last. Because the last episode we recorded, in fact, roughly 20 minutes ago. And so um, what's really the question is uh, what has been going on in the intervening time between october and february so october 2019 and february 2020 just an incredible amount of things i moved cities i changed apartments twice i got engaged to my partner and uh, those were all very big life things i started a new job Um,
1: congratulations on all. congratulations yeah
0: thank you thank you i started a new job i'm now a postdoc at the University of Constance, and I now work on cichlid fish because I'm a traitor. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> which is no, why he's cichlids... posting fish stuff on Twitter all the time. On Twitter, yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. cichlids yeah. are yes. like...
2: Cichlids are a magnificent no, group in oh, which sure. to study evolution. I, I'm not, a, very I'm not a huge fish fan, but on on Mark's defense, we've posted some interesting fish on... on Weird, odd yeah, fish. And I, um,
0: Yeah, I am striving uh, uh, to include more fish in my posts on social media, Uh, less so on Instagram, but on Twitter, you know. I think it's it's interesting, the stuff that I'm working on, and I'm hoping I can share a little bit more about that as we go forward and as I can get more stuff out.
1: But we have a strictly no ichthyology policy on this podcast oh absolutely
0: even though reptiles are strictly speaking also fish <laughs> yes, uh, yes true as are so we yeah, yeah
1: so we yeah, are all fish
0: exactly Sarcoptery- we are only allowed to talk about sarcopterygian, sarcopterygian fish Sarcopterygian, exactly <laughs> no other fish no
2: conjecture <laughs> no conjecture con- dictrin- <laughs> Chondrichthians, yes. Jesus. They have weird... Fish have annoying
1: names, too. That's the other thing about fish.
2: Fish have really annoying
0: names. Yes. Are yeah. you
1: are you working on African or South American cichlids?
0: Both, actually. So I'm working on a, all kinds of different stuff. Um, I can't I really almost, share too I much, much about African what I'm almost said African or on, European. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, there are... Uh, <laughs> 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 yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah! <laughs> <laughs>
1: You
0: have to know these things. Um, yes, one does have to know these things in order to get across the bridge. Um, yeah, so I'm working on all kinds of stuff. I'm working on some, some histology things, and uh, so, so lip-size evolution in these cichlids. I'm looking at the taxonomy again, because that's obviously uh, something I can't get away from. And I, I do love doing taxonomy, although I tell you what, reptile amphibian taxonomy, by comparison, is a piece of piss. <laughs> The stuff that's going on in cichlids will just make your brain boil. I can imagine.
2: I can imagine.
0: Uh, (laughs) You think like, oh, amphibians, they take two million years to speciate, and they pretty much always take about two million years to form really good species boundaries. And the cichlids are like, it's been two centuries. I don't know you anymore. (laughs) It's, It's incredible. We actually there are species that are less than 600 years old that's and they're crazy. behaving like real species and it's well behaving like real species in one sense. And then on the other hand, after 16 million years, they can still crossbreed with each other. So yeah. it's so uh, it's just a mess. I know. So, I know
1: from, from being in, involved with aquarium stuff that that's often sort of a, a sticking point with a lot of, yeah, it's a problem. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, like uh, what's the Mabuna. African cichlids, there's Mbuna, bunch, yeah. yeah, there are many of them and they all include hundreds of with species. And they can all
0: cross. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't just cross within the ambuna, within these these rock dwelling cichlids, they also cross with some of the pelagic cichlids and all kinds of different like
1: it's so weird. It's
0: bananas, so, yeah. yeah. Cichlids are crazy, but these are not herps. And so although they have scales, the <laughs> scales are not homologous with reptile scales and we should not talk about them in too much detail. More on that in future episodes of, of or, or future installments of the Works in Progress section of this show. Um, a few different things have really been consuming my time other than changing jobs and getting a new postdoc and moving cities and all this stuff. Um, I've been working really hard together with a few different other people, actually a few dozen other people, on a book. It's a collaborative effort with lots and lots of researchers working in Madagascar, and I can't really say more about it now, although I would love to. It's extremely exciting for me. Um, I'm getting to helm quite a lot of sections of this book, which is really exciting and is sort of setting me up for other things that I'll talk about later on, maybe. Um, but yeah, that has consumed an astounding amount of my time. And in the interim, since the last episode, I've also had three papers published, which is not so surprising because it has been a very long time.
2: Yeah, nobody so, gets surprised by you publishing papers. Only yeah, three, Mark? Also bad. Only three, only three. Only three. But, but in each one, he describes like 10 species in each one. Yeah, yeah. No, there, no, there
0: we go. no. No, no, no. It's only a cumulative four new species. So the first <laughs> one is a new species of Europlatus uh, called Europlatus Fetsi from Northwest Madagascar, absolutely wonderful little gecko that I got to collect a specimen of in 2018. So I went there for two days with uh, with a student, Jari, who um, has been working with us really intensively over the last few years on different parts of Madagascar. Uh, we went in there with Jari and a guide, Angelouk, who is the best guide in for, for finding herps in Madagascar at all. Went to the park, went into the, because we knew that this gecko was there, we just needed more specimens of it. And so we went looking for it and we were really lucky to get to find it. And we didn't only find it, but we also found some really cool behavior going on with some frogs that are not well known, which I can't talk about because the paper's not published yet. And, um, but really awesome to have a, a field trip that lasted two or three days, um, and to have really cool results come out of it. And this paper had already been sort of in the works for a long time, but I was add to, able to add this important new data to it. So,
1: and this um, uh, this new gecko, is this the one that looks very satanic, uh, leaf type? So it's not like the satanic one
0: that was published in early... Um, uh, Early 2019. This one is is from that group, but it looks... It's almost indistinguishable from Europlata's Ebenawi.
1: Yeah, with the little... So Ebenawi yeah.
0: are the spear-tailed geckos or spe- spear-pointed leaf-tailed geckos. Yeah. Yeah. They're quite small geckos that have this small um, and, and sort of rhomboid um, tail to them. Very short tail, like a tiny, tiny leaf. And Europlatus fetzi is basically impossible to tell apart from it, even though it's extremely ancient in terms of mitochondrial divergence. So we don't understand why, but for some reason, there is a huge number of, of uh, mitochondrial substitutions between these two different groups, even though they're morphologically almost indistinguishable. It turns out the one way that you can reliably tell a fetzi apart from Ebenawi is the color of the mouth hmm so fancy has a very different has this really bright color to the sides of its mouth whereas your platus has a consistently black oral mucosa um, and so if you can get them to to open their mouths and they do do that as a threat display then you can tell them apart which is really useful and you know in the the Finaritra paper where we described Europlatus Finaritra that was published in January or February 2019, we had commented on the on the risk that um, people in the pet trade who were importing these geckos were misidentifying them and and were importing the wrong species or importing one species under another name. Yeah. And although it's possible that Fetzi has also made it into the pet trade, it's less likely because it's much less accessible in its habitat. So it's only found in this one very weird forest in, uh-huh. in Madagascar.
1: I'll uh, I'll have to get with you later because I have a, uh, I know someone who breeds leaf tails and I'll have to show you some pictures and see what you oh, think. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think uh, I've encountered a lot of reluctance among people who are keeping and breeding your platys in terms of getting a real identification of their animals because nobody wants to handle them to get them to open their mouths Mm -hmm. which i sympathize with if you haven't done it a lot it can be quite difficult and if the animals don't do it immediately it's quite difficult to persuade them to open their mouths Mm -hmm. and you don't really want to persuade them too much right so um, yeah they
1: stress pretty easily i think
0: yeah they stress pretty easily although i don't think that they would like I don't think that handling them to, to get the, them to open their mouth so you can take a picture is necessarily the kind of stress that's going to cause them a huge amount of, of psychological problems or whatever. But you never know. Better to err on the side of caution. So I totally sympathize with people who are not willing to do that. But on the other hand, right. if you do want to know what you've got, then there's no other way, basically. And, and we know that. We know that the, the, you know, the, the light-colored oral mucosa is a clear signifier of one of two different species. And until you've checked the color of the mouth, you can't know if you've got one of those two species or one of the other dark mouth species. So there are
2: no differences in lepidosis?
0: Yeah, no, there are basically no... I mean, these things have tiny granule scales, and counting the scales is a nightmare. We, I, <laughs> I know very well. We I know very well. Yes, exactly. So uh, even we would get a hugely variable number counting along a line, doing the same thing. I mean, we often look at the super labial scales because they're much more consistent, but even those are not really super reliable in these geckos. So the number of of scancers under the fourth toe tends to be quite useful, hmm. but then you know you wind up always having to count scancers on the toes which is more difficult than looking at the mouth and the mouth is an instant sign of what animal you're looking at. So um, it's very convenient that it's a hundred percent diagnostic, but unfortunately it's, it's less accessible to people who are casually keeping them in the trade. So I understand the, the conflict here. Yeah. It's yeah. difficult. Yeah. So um, those were the, the two papers. And then, uh, very recently, we had this paper finally published, finally published, where we describe three new species of Kalama, these, these chameleons from Madagascar, um, small-bodied chameleons with flappy noses. And um, this paper was was helmed by um, my colleague, Dr. David Putzer who was doing his PhD alongside me in, the, um, in, in Frank Glove's group at the uh, Zoological State Collection of Bavaria in Munich. And basically, we've described three new species of chameleons and revalidated another name, which is uh, really big progress on these things. So until now, it's been basically impossible for anybody to tell apart what they've got. And everyone's just been calling everything Nezudum, hmm. even if it's not Nazudum. And we revised these things, and it turns out that the name Coloma Nazudum, which is very well established, only applies to relatively rare chameleons, of which there's one population in eastern Madagascar and one population in the far north, and we haven't ever found them in between. Mm. And pretty much everything we've been calling Coloma Nazudum, in in scare quotes, uh, is in fact Coloma Radamanus or Coloma C.F. Radamanus. So it turns out. Radamanos itself is a complex, which is a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> but the way that the taxonomy got sorted out, we basically said, okay, well, at least we can say Coloma Radamanos is this very widespread thing and Nasudum is much
2: rarer. So Nasudum has a disjunct distribution, but it's just, is that disjunct distribution relictual or is it like something that is product of something recent human we have created. no idea
0: um it might be just a failure to sample the two the like the in-between area it's possible that they used to be in forest that's completely gone mm-hmm. um uh, right now i think the main issue in the way is that we don't have good data from um places like zamina which would have been a direct uh uh, uh interjoiner between these things and maybe once we've done a better job of sampling up these rainforest areas we'll have a better idea of the actual distribution of that species and it might also be super widespread and actually found in between all these areas okay but at least right now it seems pretty clear that this thing is much less common than radamanos which is until now has always been called uh, Nozudum. And until now, Radamanus was a, was a synonym of Nozudum as well. So you so resurrected the name? We resurrected that one, and then we described three new species and also um, improved the understanding of Coloma phallax, which was a uh, another existing name. So we now know where it's found. And the three new species are called Coloma emeline, Coloma ratnasarie, and Coloma tiasmantoi. Uh, and the reason they have these relatively difficult person-dedicated names is that we sold the names uh, for not very much money um, to help to fund research in Madagascar, collection stuff in Madagascar. That's very good. And, I hate patron names, um, but okay. <laughs> yeah, it was unfortunately necessary, and I would have liked to see a lot more money for the names going, because these are really special animals, and... Kalama Ratnasarie, I collected the holotype of in northwestern Madagascar. Beautiful chameleon. It's like a rainbow in color when the males are really excited. And um, yeah, you know, it's it's difficult to remember that name and how to spell. Tiasmantoi is spelled T-J-I-A-S-M-A-N-T-O-I. So not easy words to spell, and uh, sorry about that, but we also have to fund our research somehow. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's a topic we could talk about for hours and hours and hours, so I'll just move on. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, the other thing that's been consuming a lot of my time has been writing a grant. I wrote a big grant for, um, for German Science Foundation money, the DFG. They had a call for, for projects looking at... Um, What's called taxonomics. So it's not just taxonomy, but it's looking at like big data methods in order to uh, improve the way that we do taxonomy. And I've proposed a project looking at the frogs that I've been studying for a very long time, the cophiline microhylid frogs, these, this group of microhylids from Madagascar. Um, and my project is basically trying to do cool stuff where we get like genomic scale data from type specimens. And then we improve also the species delimitation methods that we use on them, pull together lots of data, going to do some weird stuff with field sampling that's going to be entirely done by Malagasy collaborators. And um, yeah, I'm hoping that that project goes through because I think it would be, first of all, really good for my career. And secondly, uh, really fun and would bring me back to herps. And I do feel like although I'm enjoying the cichlid stuff, I'm still a herpetologist at heart and... um, you know, that's why I start the show with um, a herpetologist and evolutionary biologist, because herbs first. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and finally, I mean, uh, since the last episode I've been or since the episode before last, I have been to um, two different uh, conferences. First, I went to the European Uh, conference, European Society of Herpetology conference in uh, Milan in Italy, which was really interesting. Lots of great uh, talks there. And uh, unfortunately, that conference was entirely eclipsed by, in January, going to see the World Congress of Herpetology, about which our main discussion will be in a little bit. So before we talk about that... Uh, Gabriel, tell us what you've been up to. Well, mine since, will be very um, fast. October,
2: yes, mine will be very fast. Mostly uh, because oh, I've been super busy working on a lot of uh, projects and commissions, but most of them I cannot. They are still under embargo, and I cannot still discuss in detail. But I will say that um, since October, you know, guys, that I, I told you, I think in the last episode that I did this numerous reconstructions for the Burke Museum. Uh, where you know they told me they asked me to reconstruct a lot of the animals that are in their new exhibits for the new reopening of the museum. I did that, and they also interviewed me for a piece about paleo art they have running right now on their website. It just came out a few days ago, actually, and it's a I, I'm featured there along with uh, Julio Lacerda, which is another paleo artist that did uh, great work for them in also for the reopening of the museum, so you can see if you want to see what we think about certain things about regarding paleo art, you can read it in the interview. Um, yeah, apart from that, I mean, a lot of projects that I'm working on, uh, I can tell you that some of, some of them involve, involve uh, dinosaurs, of course, others, of the, others involve uh, uh, extinct mammals and other evolved extinct species of humans, which is something new for me, but I cannot, you know, tell you much more about that. And a fish, I've been working on fish too, Mark. Uh, At this time, I've been working on a lot of uh, fish from uh, the Devonian period, and I cannot say more about that, but there's work that I've been doing with that, which is fun because those are very odd looking fish. Um, yeah.
0: I just want to add a comment um, that I'm sort of hearing through my my headphones here from from Darren Nash that goes something along the lines of
2: fish. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I'm not a huge fan of fish, and they're, but but these ones are are, are fun to do, and um, yeah, there expect a lot of big. I mean, the thing is that I've been working on a lot of big, difficult to do, long projects that are, and some of them are. Um, will be coming out later this year, and they will progress into twenty twenty one. So um, yeah, expect a lot of things to from me this year, but I cannot give you details yet about that. On top of that, of course, I've been working on my book, which I think I was talking, to, uh, I was uh, tweeting the other and Ethan, and I had a little bit of a back and forth in Twitter about that about that I told that I was saying that um, I keep redoing some illustrations that I've done for my book because I feel that I, am, I can do a better job of rendering at this point. And so I, <laughs> my book is delaying because of part of that and also because unlike Mark, I'm an extre- I'm, I'm an extremely slow writer. And all the f- the speed that I have on my work as an illustrator, I lack in my work as a writer. And so <laughs> it's the, it takes me a while to go. And and since I am covering all the tetrapods from the Triassic and the Jurassic, you can imagine it's yeah. like, there's a lot to write there. So <laughs> a
0: huge amount to write. Yeah. So yeah. I
2: am. I am. It's taking me a while. But hopefully, my my what I'm trying to do is to present the best book that I can give you guys. So if you are a little bit patient with me and I should have it ready at some point this year. Yeah. So, Do you have an, an estimate of when the first draft might be done with the text and the figures? I don't want to give myself any more estimates because the problem is that when I give an estimate, I'm going to, something's going to happen and I'm going to meet that deadline. So I have enough yeah. deadlines that I am, that I have to deal with, with my commissions and this one that I have the control over, I don't want to give myself a hard deadline so I don't have to, yeah. you know, stress and about another deadline of all the many deadlines that i have so yeah
0: before the end of 2020 we can expect a beautiful book to show up on our doorsteps right
2: hopefully yeah hopefully yeah i I think i mean it's 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 (laughs) primarily written most of it there are some parts that i keep going back because things change of course in paleontology and uh i want to I mean, Darren's been talking
0: about his book for how many years? That's
2: that's a trap that I don't want to fall into. Of course, in his case, he's doing the whole vertebrate fossil record, which is insane. So,
1: of course, yes, I'm just dealing with tetrapods and just from the Triassic and Jurassic and still a nightmare. So more than once I've told him he's got to call it Darren's every damn vertebrate ever. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: Uh, And and I feel for him, you know, because I'm just dealing with a fraction of that. And it's still, yeah. a, it's still a nightmare, so. Um, well, it's, and like you said, it's a moving target. I mean, it, it's a moving you know. target. And, and, you know, and, and it's funny because when Mark and I have dealt with this before, because we, we've talked, you know, about, about doing books about extant reptiles and amphibians. And even that is a moving target, but it's nowhere right. near how much of a moving target dealing with extinct taxa is, primarily because phylogeny tends to not be as well established so there's a lot of conflicting evidence that move things wildly (laughs) and so so it's a it's a little bit annoying and but um and and on top of that uh, my own um i think my own intricate or intricacies as a as an artist that you know i feel like maybe i can do this better again. So let me redo that piece again, or right. maybe a, I can a, just do. Yeah, that's a it's trap. A, it's a trap. I mean, <laughs> it's a trap. I, but I, I I game. Game. It is yeah. a trap, but I also want to make sure that I present the best product that I can. So. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So that yeah, and I mean the the draft that you've shown, you know these these page layouts that you've shown already look absolutely stunning. So I I, I imagine the more time you invest in it, the more. The whole book actually looks at like that quality and.
2: Thank you. I yeah. hope I hope that I can do a good job, and I'm trying to you know I'm trying to from design. a
0: from a design perspective. How are you putting it together? Like the I know the individual images are basically being drawn in Photoshop, right?
2: Yes, I well I've done then, some pieces in in, uh, in Procreate too, but most of them are done in Photoshop. But I'm 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 designing everything in uh, in design. In mm-hmm. Okay, so InDesign.
0: You then use, um, and and with the vector illustrations, are you doing those in Photoshop as well? Like the the trees that you're using to join them together. Or are you putting things together in Illustrator and then bringing that into InDesign? Well,
2: originally, I was doing. I was using Illustrator. Actually, I wasn't using Illustrator because I'm. I've. I've not used Illustrator in a while. I've found that for me, um, Affinity Designer works really well and I'm really happy with that. And if I can leave Adobe and find something that works better, I definitely will. So I've been using Affinity Designer and it works really well for that. But more recently, for uh, time, I I hate jumping from one program to another, to another, you know, because I will have to jump from to do the trees, the cladograms, that I have, I will have to jump from uh, Photoshop for the like, arranged illustrations to Illustrator to do the vector part, and then to um, InDesign where in I designed it. Yeah. So I did. I, I'm I've been doing a lot of the trees directly in Photoshop because it's it's it. I don't want to. Jump from one. And ultimately,
0: as long as you're exporting it at a high enough resolution, it doesn't actually matter. Exactly.
2: It's not like I'm gonna print the trees at at the
1: building size. So exactly. I I don't need that. So yeah. So what about you, Ethan? What have you been doing? Okay. Uh, So I thought I'd start with uh, giving a a state of the new room address. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh,
0: i think this is a great idea just everybody wants about... to know what's happening in the new room
1: yeah so um we're heading into the breeding season for a lot of stuff so i've got a lot of um i've got triturus dabrogigus and triturus marmoratus the males are starting to get the crests forming on their backs and they're doing a lot of tail waving um a lot of tail waving for the Neurojurus crocatus too, which have been good breeders for me before. Um, my uh, Spanish rib newts are—they breed every time I change the water, so that <laughs> doesn't really, you know. That's funny. That's not really a big difference. Uh, yeah, any time I mean, there's a, just a water change, like any slight change in the temperature, and they're they're off to the races. Um. And then like, so new species this year that I'm working with, uh, I'm going to have Nergerus Kaiseri. They're from like three, three streams in Iran and Iraq. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and in their wild, they, the, all their water dries up, but mine stay aquatic all year. I've never, mm. like they, <laughs> they never come out of the water. They don't so, have to, they won't. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one of the new species that I'm working with. I've had really good luck with their, uh, closely related crocatus species. So I'm hoping to have those. They're really sought after pretty rare in the trade. Um, I'm working with, um, two species of synops, pyrogaster, which is the Japanese fire belly and orientalis, which is the Chinese. The Chinese are very small dwarf almost. Um, the pyrogaster are like four times the size. They're huge. And wow. They're uh, they're doing the tail waving already, so they're probably gonna drop eggs soon. Hmm. And then the last one that I'm um, working with this year, I'm hoping for eggs this year. Uh, are uh, I have five necturus cf byri. Um I don't know what they've if they've decided on an actual designation for them but Mm. i know loading eye was being thrown around as a possibility but i think that's actually a different i'm not sure if they were actually formally described yet or not but they took uh i've had them for like almost five years they were wild caught as like tiny tiny little babies and they're now reach hitting maturity after like almost five years so Mm. so they're that's been a long-term project. I'm hoping for some some eggs there.
0: It's a lot of newts. Yeah,
1: newts yeah. <laughs> yeah. are awesome. So. Uh, I've also got some fire salamanders that I'm working with, but they're probably a year off from from breeding. Uh-huh. But I've got uh-huh. salamandra salamandra bernardesi, and I may have the only female breedable female in the U.S.
2: Wow! Wow.
1: What is the status of
2: those subspecies of salamander? Are they still considered? I mean, are they? Because you know, because we talked about before, they're all
1: considered uh, locat like subspecies. Yeah, uh, it's a mess. Yeah, exactly. What's
2: about because we we've talked before about the problem
1: about subspecies.
2: So what I'm saying is that are they candidates? Are good candidates for for distinct
1: species? I think so. I I think so. Uh, I don't. I I mean, I don't know what the consensus is, but I, I. Everything I've seen seems to suggest that I don't know, Mark. There is
0: an astonishing amount of work going on on salamandra at the moment. Um, if you every every time you go to a European or a German um, herpetology conference, they will talk for hours on end about phylogeographic patterns and and hybrid zones and distribution patterns and new distribution records yeah. of different subspecies and uh, different populations of virus alamanders. and so getting an overview i think is something where at the moment it's going to be really really hard if we keep waiting for five years things might clean up a little bit and we might have a better more consistent elevation of subspecies versus species rank things where it's all been analyzed in much more detail with like hybrid zone stuff and and stuff but at the moment i know that the vast majority of things are still being considered as valid subspecies and that means yeah, that they're valid maybe, species. Well, they, they might eventually become valid species. It really is going to depend on how much gene flow is happening between them. And, um, and, 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 yeah, yeah. Whether or not there really are contact zones or if they are entirely allopatric, then what do you do in those situations? This is a, a really challenging thing for, for, um, speciation research to, to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: Well, we've talked about that a little bit before and about how oh, like the trade over in Europe is totally different versus what it is here. Like they're extremely rare here. They're super common over there. So it's, absolutely. Yeah.
0: And I mean, it's kind of funny because of course, you know, I can, I can encounter a fire salamander here on the road. Um, yeah. but that's all, uh, as far as I understand it, salamandra, 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 um, and you know you have to go to very specific locations to come yeah. across the other subspecies, but uh, in the pet trade there are there is greater diversity. But of course our local native salamandra 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 are not, um, or at least we're not allowed to like collect them from the from right. the forest or whatever. You know they are, have to go through are the, legal means. Are the
2: difference between the uh, salamandra 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 taxa? Uh, are the differences between them just Um, color color and pattern or do they have
0: for the most part there are some major size differences among different uh subspecies as well
1: also the the amount of the number of offspring and where the like uh when they're laid developmentally because Mm. remember salamandra mostly give live birth to almost fully developed metamorphs where they are at in that process is different species, uh, different depending on which one you're looking at.
2: The problem is that with amphibians being so plastic, within even within species, in that character, it's difficult. Yeah. That yeah.
1: you know. Uh... Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and they were, you know, because we had this the ban here in the states where you couldn't ship salamanders even across state lines, unless they were eggs. That that kind of completely, you know, for salamandra, that's it. There were, There is no trade yeah. because there's no eggs.
0: Mm. Oh, that's interesting that it would affect them so much differently because of that small life history change. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, salamandra are actually a really good system to study uh, for parental care, as we've mentioned in the previous episode. Yeah. Uh, like parental care in, in amphibians in general is highly variable- Um, salamandra itself i mean salamandra atra has incredible uh uh, parental care in the form of an extremely long gestation period and 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 then giving birth to i think even fully formed
1: yeah um, uh, fully and bernardese do too um fully formed and sometimes not even larval they're they're uh already terrestrial. Yeah, exactly. I
0: think they're 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 fully developed um, uh, terrestrial salamanders, which is super interesting and and also varies depending on the elevation of the salamander outro population
2: that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So What are the things? Really the really cool. are so plastic in those things that it's, it's crazy.
1: The thing yeah. that's interesting with with the, like in terms of captive care that I've have found so far is that like they're terrible swimmers. So so you you need to provide them with Enough water to, to do the deed to to lay the the larva, but mm-hmm. not, not enough what not, not so much that they drown.
0: drown. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do tend to you know they they go give birth in and around these um, very shallow flowing streams, right? Yeah. And and even if the water is flowing quite quickly, the adults are not swept away,
1: right? Right. It's, it's, well, they um, kind of do this. The, they back in they kind of do this sort of like sort of back uh-huh. up into the water and beep, yeah beep, sh- yep. beep. yeah they're not the you know i mean i it, they're not great at <laughs> at, at swimming again so.
2: we always say that you know some salamanders how did they make how some amphibians yeah. say, how yeah. have you made it this far yeah
0: yeah yeah that is the that is the absolute truth
1: So, uh, so I'm hoping for, I think it looks like it's going to be a really good year as far as the, uh, the newts go and the salamanders go. Uh, I'm going to be doing several reptile shows, so that'll be fun. Um, I had, uh, believe it or snot came out. I think I mentioned that before. Yeah. If you didn't, we
0: definitely did in the last episode, I think. So, Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: And I relaunched my Patreon during the break. So that's Which kind users
0: of... listeners can go find at
1: Patreon.com slash Black Mud Puppy. Um, Excellent. And, um, and then as far as art projects go, I've got two things that I'm aside from the you know the normal commissions and stuff like that, I am trying to put together a pitch document and have been for a while for a uh, adapt a graphic novel adaptation of War with the Newts by mm-hmm. KP. Uh, Carol Kapek the the coiner of the word robot. Uh, and uh, it's a very, it's a classic science fiction story. The original Czech version is in the public domain. So uh, I have to actually find someone, one of the things I'm work- looking to do is find someone to, do a new translation for me Mm. because then I'm covered under the public domain, uh, side of things. So that's, Mm. uh, something that I've been working on putting together. And, uh, the other thing is a really early days, but a, a piece that I want to do, it's based on a piece I had already done, uh, about an early aquarist, uh, named Jean Villapro power. I'm probably saying that wrong. It was French. Uh, but she's, she was, uh, she worked in the 1830s. She was known by, even by Sir Richard Owen mm-hmm. as this uh, amazing scientist. She worked with Argonauts. Uh, Surprising from him. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> uh, she was, she was amazing. She, she was the person who essentially figured out, who determined that uh, the Argonauts build their own shells they don't. Mm. Uh, they don't mm-hmm. acquire them like like hermit crabs, and she did that with designing all these experiments, uh, putting uh, uh, building aquariums. These aquariums actually were in the ocean, though they they were <laughs> in situ that she would go and get from mm. the, the the ocean. All of her research was destroyed in a shipwreck.
0: Gosh. Oh no!
1: So she uh, was kind of lost to history, but. Um, it's something that I, that's a, that's sort of a passion project for me. That's something I want to work on. Uh, really
0: cool. Yeah. So interesting. Well, on the topic of these, uh, of, of, uh, graphic novels like that, I, I saw at, uh, the world Congress that there's a book about Joan Proctor, who we of course talked about on a previous episode. Uh, A children's book, Mm -hmm. so it's illustrated, beautifully illustrated, and uh, it seems to tell the story of her life and her role at the Zoological Society and the Zoological, um, uh, um, or London Zoo, of course. That's really Um, cool. So yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I will, if I can find it on um, yeah on Amazon or whatever, I'll add it to the show notes, and you can check it out. And definitely, um, looks like a great thing for setting herpetological role models for for young kids and especially for young girls so yeah all that stuff is i think so important i think graphic novels and and um, illustration is such a great way to communicate enthusiasm to to young people
1: uh you know just to go back i don't not to monopolize the time but as far as talking about um the war with the newts it's I'm attracted to this project because it's about newts, but it's also this amazing story about uh, an anti-fascist sort of work. Hmm. Uh, Kapek was writing this in the 30s, and if it tells you anything, he, he the Nazis, when they invaded Prague, he was the first person that they came to. He had already died a few months before, which I think, retros- in retrospect, he would have loved – but yes. if you like things like like Vonnegut, it's that sort of darkly funny j- science fiction uh genre. It's it's really good. If if you read it now, it feels like it could have been written yesterday, which is scary, mm. but Which is scary. It's <laughs> Yeah.
0: That is scary. Uh the, well, I'm going to wait for the graphic novel to come out I want <laughs> <honest. laughs> Sounds
2: great. <Yeah. laughs> And if it's illustrated by Ethan, you know, it's going to be great. Uh, It it will be. It will be.
0: I've always enjoyed punchy comics. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: Superb. (laughs) So.
1: Yeah. The, the newts are sort of a, uh, you could almost use them as a stand in for, for climate change. Also, it's just sort of like human beings are incapable of coming together and getting over all of our nationalism and whatever, uh, to to deal with a pro- big a problem like that, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. When <laughs> was it written? Um, I believe 1933. I think.
0: Okay. Yeah. Wow. What a time. Yeah. Yeah. Huh.
1: Yeah. Well, he's very. I mean, it's it's like I said, it's darkly funny, and he's very critical of. There's, you know, he almost like nails it as far as criticism of, of what happens to Germany. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, I can't recommend it enough. It's great. And, and, and,
0: uh, what is the relevance of newts to the story? so,
1: So they find this race of newts, uh, living in the, in the, uh, in, in the Indonesian waters. And they are, um, They're supposed to be Andreas Schutzeri, the the famous, you know, crypto-branched salamanders. Uh Um, But they're this race of, you know, bipedal newts. They learn, they gain the ability to talk. They use tools. They can build things. Humanity pretty much immediately puts them to use as slave labor. And ultimately, they end up revolting and... uh, you know subjugating humanity but the actual war is only covered in a few pages at the end of the book it's it's really about the lead up to that hmm. uh and it's it's uh it's awesome and it would be a great opportunity it sounds like to, it
0: would be a fun fun yeah. graphic novel yeah yeah. excellent well i hope you can get it uh off the ground and 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 yeah, it may yeah. end
1: up be having to be a uh, you know, a kickstarter type of a deal. I'm not sure yet exactly what, you know. Cuz there's not a lot of call there's not a lot of interest in <laughs> in public domain, you know, uh works from that era, but it's a classic. It deserves yeah, you know, a good Yeah, and I think that
0: uh you can add a huge amount of value by adding you know, your twist, your unique uh, um, a take on it, and also your art style. I mean, everybody enjoys your art style. I so. feel like I was born um, to do
1: that. That one. So yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah.
0: Super. All right, guys. Shall we move on to yeah. the main subject of the episode, which is actually discussion of uh, the well, the World Congress. <laughs> the World Congress. Let's talk about the World Congress of Herpetology.
1: Not that so, crap Congress to- we have here in the U.S. <laughs> Just. The- <laughs>
0: There are a few congresses in the U.S. I wouldn't say most of them are crap. I'm sure some of them are crap some of the time. I mean,
1: uh, the big one, the United States Congress. Yeah, he was talking about
0: the U.S. Congress. (laughs) Ah, yeah, not of herpetology is a fundamental disaster. (laughs) Yeah. No, the World Congress of Herpetology is a much much better organization (laughs) uh, in in pretty much every way. (laughs) So, yeah, on the 5th of January 2020, around 800 to 900 herpetologists from all over the world, except mostly most of Africa, assembled in Dunedin on the east coast of the South Island of New Zealand, which was great. It was pretty much equally far away for the vast majority of herpetologists (laughs) it was extremely inconvenient to get to I travelled for over 30 hours to get there and my journey was by far not the longest I heard some people who who travelled from the middle of nowhere in Arizona and had to go a really really long way um, because they went the wrong way around the earth essentially (laughs) Jesus. uh, Yeah, when I was there, it was really interesting because I realized that um, New Zealand is almost exactly... So the points on New Zealand are antipodes with Portugal. So while I was there, I realized that the South Pole was substantially closer to Germany than Dunedin is because it's basically impossible to get further away on the planet (laughs) than getting to... South Island of New Zealand. Which was a pretty shocking thing for me, a person who does not very much enjoy flying. <laughs> um, it, it took a really long time to get there. It was exhausting. And then, of course, because you're on the opposite, opposite side of the world, the time difference is precisely 12 hours. Oh.
2: <laughs> so, I would imagine the jet lag was insane. Yeah, The
0: jet lag was... Honestly, on the way there, it wasn't so bad because I hadn't slept for something like 34 hours. And so I was just sort of like jittery Um, and I managed to stay awake until the late evening and then my body woke me up at six o'clock. So I was fine actually getting into the rhythm of being there. Twelve hours is not so bad. On the way back, it was a disaster because I got back and I was just like everything is, is awful. That, my body is broken. That seems to be always like... my
2: experience. That the jet lag is always worse when you come back than when you go somewhere. Like when I travel yeah. to Europe, when I travel to Europe, yeah. the jet lag is never as bad as when I'm there as when I come back. Is when the jet. Yeah, lag... I
1: think you're kind of carried by the adrenaline of being in the new place. Whereas, yeah, yeah, maybe when you come yeah. back. So I have two two big questions. Uh-huh. Did you catch a Hoplodactylus del Oh,
0: uh, not only did I not catch a Hoplodactylus cordi, <sighs> no one caught a Hoplodactylus stellcordi or list <laughs> well, they haven't told garbage. us about it, which is real disappointing. <laughs> I have heard about some other giant geckos, but I'm not allowed to tell you about those. Uh, so And did you uh, see a is my other question. I did see a hobbit. Oh. Well, at least I went to Hobbiton, ah. and it was. And he dressed like a hobbit just, too. I know. <laughs> I did dress like a hobbit. I, I it's the first time in my life I've ever cosplayed. It happened that I was wearing. I was. I had brought all of the stuff with me anyway to go to the conference because I like to overdress at conferences, and uh, and I rocked up to the conference in my waistcoat and my beautiful uh, jacket, and and then I was like, oh, I'm going to Hobbiton. I might as well wear these things. So I, I dressed up and I went on the on the bus uh, to Harlington <laughs> with a bunch of other tourists who were there. And they, the bus driver was so amused <laughs> by the fact that I was dressed so over the top, and everybody else was like in normal clothes. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's a major a, props for it. A so. pilgrimage
1: for you, I think. Exactly.
0: It wasn't. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, I am a very, I'm very deeply passionate about the Lord of the Rings and all of the works of of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, Professor Tolkien, as we call him. And, um, yeah, so it was a big deal to get to go there. I mean, obviously, uh, um, Professor Tolkien never would have imagined that these things would have been filmed in New Zealand, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But it, having it in New Zealand was so so poignant. But also, I think,
2: not only because of the movie we and now relate, in, relate them as looking there. But also New Zealand has a type of environment which suits this suits, uh, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings perfectly. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing was this feeling of traveling for over 30 hours, getting out of the airplane and being like, have I landed in fucking London? I cannot. <laughs> what the hell is going on? All of the birds, European birds, I passed a, a, a dead... Um, um, a, a the carcass of a hedgehog that had been hit over, hit oh, by a car. Okay. So, like that is course, actually sad because New Zealand had yes. a very
2: has a has and had a very <laughs> interesting uh, endemic fauna. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it wasn't until
0: um, several days in that I saw the first bird that was a native to the to the island, and that wow. was a kittywake, a kind of. Go, And this whole, um, yeah, the whole thing just felt so surreal. Of course, rabbits and hares and everything as well. So you you wind up traveling halfway around the world. And of course, the first thing that the colonists did when they arrived was like, oh, this place could use some some sparrows yes, and some pigeons as well. Yes. <laughs> and they did. They brought everything with them, which is just, it's such a, it's so tragic. I mean, you can see the native woodland and that's absolutely beautiful. And then everything else is like completely non-native things. So yeah. it really wasn't until multiple days, uh, several days into the whole trip that I saw my first actually native animals. And I, I didn't see a single herp on my entire trip. I was there for two weeks. Wow. Didn't see one herp, uh, which is very sad. But I also didn't like, take a lot of time to go herping because I just didn't have a lot of time. Um And, uh, yeah, and aside from that, I barely saw any of the native birds. I wound up seeing a few of the um, uh, New Zealand um, kingfishers, which was really cool because they are beautiful birds. And um, they have these weird, very robust beaks, which I wasn't expecting. And um, there are quite a few of them along the shore. So that was really interesting. A little bit
2: kookaburra-like.
0: They're, I guess, a bit kookaburra-like, but less. I mean, that's a really robust kingfisher like yeah. so yeah yeah a bit of a different ball game here uh but no of course i was mostly there to see the world congress it was so funny you know arriving in the airplane in fact the transfer so i, I flew into auckland after two 12-hour flights uh, or 11-hour flights and then everyone is sort of waiting for the flight from auckland down to dunedin and you can start start playing the game of spot the herpetologist and, <laughs> Eventually, you know i got down sat sat in the plane um uh, the person next to me was almost certainly going to the congress, and then aside from me i I see this guy who's standing there and uh you know or sitting there reading the program for the thing, and so I got into a conversation with him and um and so yeah immediately you're already surrounded by all these herpetologists, so this was really cool um so so I have a few like sorry go ahead. know
2: talk to talk to us about which of the talks uh you like the most
0: well yeah so first i wanted to mention the fact that this congress was spectacularly organized so they had hired a company that basically does this professionally and they had put together i mean so there were 900 delegates or so 800 or 900 delegates and many of them were giving more than one talk so i gave two talks myself uh, uh Angelica Crotini, one of my main collaborators, she gave three talks. And because of that, the, the schedule had more talks in it than there were delegates. So they had managed to do this incredible job of organizing all these different things. Unfortunately, the the stretch to walk between the different buildings meant that you almost always arrived late if you had to change buildings in between talks. Um, and they hadn't done... That thing that some other conferences, like the Evolution Congress in 2018, which is in Montpellier, they had planned in two to three minutes for you to change venue in between talks. So your talk was 12 minutes, and then you had three minutes for questioning, and then you had like four minutes to change venue, change room or something, or five minutes to change room. So you wind up with these 20-minute slots, of which only 12 minutes is, is a talk, But you still have time to get to the next room without this awkward um, These are really always arriving late. These are
1: really rapid fire.
0: Yeah, these are really short talks. And I was lucky because I was organizing or I was co-organizing one of the symposia. And so I was able to arrange it so that one of my talks was a 30-minute talk. Um, But yeah, all of these talks were really short except for the keynotes. And there were two keynotes a day for this five-day conference. So there's a lot of keynote talks. Um, But they were absolutely great. So I wanted to talk uh, about three of these keynote talks in particular that really um, blew me away. The first was by Philippe Koch, who's been working on Sky Islands in, um, in Central or in South America. And the stuff that he was doing on these mountains, the way that he's told the story was super, super cool. So um, they've been studying the densities of these of these frogs on top of these mountains. Tipuis and some of the, the the tipuis, yes, um, they're table mountains, right? So yeah. um, the density of frogs on top of these tipuis is absolutely astronomical. So they have huge, huge, huge densities of frogs, but the frogs are all super sessile. And I mean, he was telling some pretty crazy stories. About those trips, I'm sure. So, um, then there was also an amazing um keynote speech by Jody Rowley, who, of course, I think we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, I'd really like to get her on as a guest sometime. Yeah, she's just so much fun, and and her talk is so was so enthusiastic and so engaging. And I mean, she's obviously been talking about this with a lot of like as a lot of public outreach. Um, but she was talking about the success of Frog ID in Australia, told some really funny stories about people who, like all of these people who keep recording insects and uploading it. And then they're like, sorry, that's an insect. And then the, when the people are like, oh, we're going to take our recordings to someone who actually understands these frogs because you guys obviously have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Which is so funny. So um, no, her talk was was really great. Um, she made it really personal too, talking about her father and and stuff. So great, just just really good. And it was great to catch up with Jody as well. I I've, um, I met her for the first time in 2015 at the um, at the meeting in Kansas, and um, uh, no, it was really cool to hear all the stuff that she's doing and to the incredible amount of work that's going into running frog ID, which is really insane. Um, but I think for me, probably the best of the keynote talks was by, um, Anna Carnaval. So she was talking about Atlantic forest frogs and, um, the talk was in fact so good that I, a little bit late, but I streamed the whole thing on Twitter through, um, through periscope and that's still on my twitter feed so if you go scroll through a little bit you can go and, and watch her talk and she was just so engaging and so funny um, in the way that she was talking about these we, um, uh, these frogs and the things that they had learned and some of the mistakes that they made along the way and trying to understand them and um yeah no it was really cool okay then i just wanted to highlight some other really great talks that i heard um mark wilkinson of the nhm talked about uh some forthcoming sicilian genomes which was really cool and the possibly the coolest thing about the sicilian genomes was that they seem to be of incredibly high quality so uh, not only can we look forward to getting some sicilian genomes in the near future those sicilian genomes should also be of pretty stellar uh Quality. quality so
2: that would be yeah. very interesting. The first genome from my Sicilian. Cool. Yeah.
0: And then cool. um, uh, Emma Sherrett, of course, talked about microcephaly in the um, sea snakes, as we have talked about many times in the past on the show. Her research is just so, so cool. And it was great to get to catch up with her. We're moving our own collaboration a little bit along right now, which is also good and um but she's just doing such cool stuff. And they, the microcephaly is is bonkers. So she's been trying to better understand the way that those skulls are um, developing and why they're so much smaller and what's actually changing about the ratios. And basically stuff that I've mentioned before. But um, just cool to see her talking about it in, per- in person. And, and then
2: I, so I imagine the, a lot of talks that you cannot really discuss with yeah, so
0: there are a bunch of talks where either I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about them on the podcast or uh, I'm definitely not allowed to talk about them on the podcast. I mean... Those are the good ones, um, guys.
2: Those are the ones that we... <laughs> yeah,
0: those are the good ones. I mean, Juan Daza talked about these albanerpetontids, alba um, which is really cool. So it's already been published that the, uh, the chameleon fossil, the amber, the bermite chameleon fossil... Um, is in fact not a chameleon fossil, not the one that we talked about on the last episode, this skull thing, but the the amber embedded one um, from Myanmar turns out to not be a chameleon at all, but is in fact an albanerpetontid, which is this relatively obscure group that apparently went extinct only relatively recently in the Pleistocene, right? Um, And they're really fascinating. So so Juan Daza was talking about their relationships with other things and um, especially possibly their relationship with Sicilians, which would be really exciting and interesting if that turns out to be um, a verifiable conclusion. Looking we'll so, forward to that. Um, yeah, that was cool. Um, I wanted to talk also, mention briefly Ian Brennan's talk. So Ian talked about Varanids and and phylogeny of varinids and like things about their body size evolution and stuff. But mostly Ian's talk, Ian's a grad student. He's uh, finishing up his PhD, I think. And his talk was the most beautiful talk I have ever seen. He has clearly spent days and hours and definitely days and possibly weeks and months of his life just in Illustrator making these beautiful semi-abstracted uh, illustrations of all the different baronet species and his whole thing. He had even done a, a sort of abstracted illustration of Aaron Bauer himself. <laughs> so it was so good. Um, his talk was just, it was really well um, organized. I was one of the judges for lizard talks and um, yeah, he, he uh, won our category because his talk was engaging and beautiful it was a little bit too long but otherwise it was just a really um Does great it, talk do
1: you guys do like the olympic uh you know scorecards, or you hold up
0: you no know? not mm, <laughs> we, we uh we talked among ourselves and then agreed <laughs> on something and then 9.9 <laughs> issued it. 9.9 and
1: then yeah. mark is
0: like <laughs> 6.2 <and then laughs> um and for me, the big highlight of the, of the whole Congress was that I co organized this symposium on microhylids. So, um, as I've talked about many times in the past, I've worked very intensely on Madagascar microhylids. And so, um, at the Evolution Congress in Montpellier, I had sat down with uh, Raphael de Sa, uh, Joao Tonini, Angelica Cretini and um, Marta Vidal-Garcia. And all five of us work on, I think it's five, uh, work on um, microhylids in various different ways. So uh, Marta works on them in Australia, works on their functional morph- morphology and also their um, uh, micro CT stuff. Uh, Angelica also works on the ones in Madagascar and Rafael and Joao were working on the ones in Central and South America. And um, we decided at that thing that we should definitely put together a symposium on the uh, microhylids because there are uh, so many different groups. It's a, a family of frogs distributed across the world. It turns out that it's at the same rank as, like, as some of the other major ranks. So even though it's considered one family, it's like um, Afrobatrachia in terms of its level. Mm-hmm. So it's a really deep thing. It should probably be like hyloidia, treated as a superfamily, and and uh, all of the subfamilies of which there are, I think, uh, 13 subfamilies should be should elevated to be family some, level. Yeah, to so, uh, so we, should, it
2: should be so, microhyloidia.
0: Yeah, it should be microhyloidia. And it's, it's actually been advanced a few times in the past in literature, so there's precedence for doing that. It just needs to happen at a systematic level. And so we thought, okay, it would be great if we can bring together all of the experts on different groups across the world, everyone who's been researching these frogs, we can get them to talk about what they're working on. And we can sort of work at a better integration of all of these different perspectives and move forward as sort of a a consortium of people working on microhylids across the world. And so... We had great talks by various different people. Obviously, I don't want to list everybody, but I was really excited that Jeff Stryker and Simon Loder, who are both from the Natural History Museum in London, were able to be there. They talked about their own um, uh, projects. So, so Jeff has been working on phylogenomics of these frogs, and Simon has been working especially on really obscure um, African microhylid frogs and, and things that we barely know anything about. Um, really great to see and hear their perspective on them. And then, uh, unfortunately, Nick Poyarkov, who I had really been hoping would be able to make it because he's doing incredible stuff with Southeast Asian uh, micro he wasn't able to come. And also um, Sonali Garg, who we had invited, was also not able to be there. So um, there was an entire session at the end of the afternoon that we had to cancel, but we instead of having those two talks that would have been um sort of the way that we'd be wrapping up and then we'd have a discussion we decided to make that entire afternoon session about discussion so we made an open invitation to everybody who had come to our talks and we said hey listen we're gonna have this meeting afterward everyone please come and uh, and we can discuss about how we move forward with the research around the world and stuff and and a really surprising number of people showed up for that meeting, way more than I would have expected. I think we were um, 12 people or so in the end with um, people like uh, Paul Oliver, David Bickford, um, so other microhylid researchers, some that I didn't know about. So um, uh, we had a guy called Jian Jingping who was there. is He's a, a Chinese researcher who's been trying to establish the um, microhyla system, microhyla fisipes, as a model organism. So really interesting to have him there, and we all sat and talked about how we want to move the field forward, what we think the big questions are in terms of studying microhylid frogs, and um, what everybody's working on right now. And it was just so cool to have all of these different people interested in this one ridiculous group of frogs. Um, sitting essentially in a circle and talking about how we can move forward as a big group. And so we already put together some ideas of uh, papers that we want to write together as a group and bringing in also other um, uh, researchers working on other um, areas of the world that weren't represented while we were there. And uh, there's another big book project somewhere in the works for that will arise from this from this thing so i can't talk about that in detail but essentially uh if you know anything about microhylids there's an important book that was written by parker hampton wildman parker in 1934 i brought this book along with me to dunedin to show it to people because i was like this is our history it's a monograph of the frogs of the family microhylidae published 1934 and basically it's time for a second edition. You would, yeah. So, um, it
2: is very, it's highly outdated.
0: It's highly outdated, but it's spectacularly useful even today. And I, um, I think that there is now the impetus and the expertise globally that we can pull together something where we put together a beautiful book, also on microhyalids and um, and treating them in a more global perspective uh, but also giving the detail on the different groups the different families that they would be under the super family concept um, that can really help us to organize the 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 information that we've already got so I'm heading up that project and I'm very excited about it and um, yeah watch this space I mean it's gonna be a long time in the making but I um I'm gonna make it happen so
2: looking forward to really- yeah
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to writing it, uh, or at least editing it. Um, I think it's going to be a big edited book, probably. We'll see. We'll see. But the Congress was amazing. It was so cool to hang out with so many different people. Um, In the next episode of the Squamates podcast, you'll get to hear an interview that I did um, with a a bunch of... um, of researchers who put together a very, very interesting data set on sex biases or or sex ratios within uh, herpetological publishing. So um, tune in next episode for that perspective. And um, that was the first time I've ever done a live interview with anybody for any reason. So that was really fun. And um, yeah, so... I think that wraps it up, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So um, thanks for listening. We hope that you're enjoying this new format of the show. Uh, for us, it's also very new, and uh, hopefully we can polish it out more as we go along. Um, but, yeah,
2: Gabriel, where can one find you on the Internet? Uh, you guys can find me at, at serpentillus. that's S E R P E. N I L L U S on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook and also on my website,
1: GabrielUgetGood.com.
0: Great. And Ethan, where can we find you?
1: Uh, I am uh, at Black Mud Puppy just about everywhere Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And uh, I also run the website, nudist, N E W T I S T, dot com. And I'm now on Patreon, as we mentioned earlier, uh, with the uh, patreon.com slash Black Mud Puppy.
0: Excellent. You can follow me at Mark Shirts, M A R K S C H E R Z on all of the social media except on Facebook where you'll find me at md shirts because i'm stupid and um <laughs> you can follow the podcast and you can go read our show notes at squamatespod.com you can follow us on twitter at squamatespod on facebook squamatespod instagram where are squamatespod you can send us an email telling us feedback or asking us questions squamatespod at gmail.com and as we like to say on the show hakuna